Welcome to Reading Genesis. My name is Stephen Longclaw. I'm a priest serving in the Anglican Church in North America and also a United States Navy chaplain. Join me as we discover the sacramental and enchanted world of the Bible through Reading Genesis together. We are in Genesis 49. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis 49. And let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time to come together and study your word. We pray that you would speak for your servants are listening. Bless us now as we open our Bibles to Genesis 49. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we jump into chapter 49, or jump back into chapter 49 rather, I want to read verse 28 of chapter 49. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. So there's a couple of things preliminary that I want to point out that as Jacob goes through and blesses his 12 sons, we see that these blessings are for the sons, but also they are very pregnant blessings and prophecies, meaning it's a bit, it's pregnant, meaning it's a bit too much just for the son itself. So it's for the tribe that will proceed from the son, the progeny of of the son that's why in verse 28 all these are the 12 tribes of israel it doesn't say all these are the 12 sons of israel though they are the 12 sons of israel of course but uh, as as we as we would see in the book of exodus the uh, the sons uh, continue to multiply with their wives and they have many sons and daughters and each son becomes a patriarch to the tribe named after him so you got 12 sons, so you're going to have 12 tribes that make up the people of Israel. And those are the 12 tribes that are delivered in the Exodus under Moses in the book of Exodus. So with that, we are continuing in Genesis 49. We already looked at uh, Reuben last week, Simeon and Levi, and Judah. We spent a lot of time on Judah because Jesus Christ, our Messiah, is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. So we see things like the scepter shall not depart from Judah. That means the kingship shall not depart from Judah. There's going to be an everlasting king on the throne of Judah. As we talked about last week, that is talking about Jesus's reign, for he is the king of kings and lord of lords. Uh, it must be a spiritual reign because there's no king, earthly king, in Israel right now ruling, right? Israel doesn't have a king. So this is talking about the Messiah, King Jesus, who reigns from the heavenly throne room and is not only the king of Judah and not only the king of Israel as a people, but is the king of the whole world to include all the Gentiles. So are there any leftover questions from last week? All right, we shall jump into it at verse 13, uh, looking at Zebulun. I will warn you, a lot of these are, are odd prophecies, and I don't have a lot to say about a lot of them, but where I do have something to say, we'll, we'll explore some of that. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Now, as we look forward in the future of the 12 tribes, we see that the tribe of Zebulun settles near the sea, though they don't actually settle right up next to the sea. Uh, however, they, they do do a lot of trade and commerce with seagoing people. So this prophecy is looking forward to all that trade and commerce that they shall do. Number four, uh, excuse me, verse 14. Issachar 
is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He shall he saw that a resting place was good, and the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Yahweh. One of the great judges, I believe Samson in the book of Judges is, uh, is from the tribe of Dan. Um, and then at the very end of the book of Judges, <laughs> let me just pause. If you haven't read the book of Judges, I commend it to you as I commend all the books of the Bible to you. But the book of Judges is a hard PG-13. When you get to the very end, it's a hard R, right? It's a hard R rating. So the book of Judges ends with a, a horrible, horrible rape and a, uh, a man who, who cuts up this woman into several pieces and sends her all over Israel as a, as a testimony to how wicked the people of Israel have become. And a Dan, the, 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 the Danites, the people of Dan, get caught up in all of this. So uh, I think this is looking forward to that time, that Dan's going to be a serpent in the way of viper in the path, meaning what do serpents do? They bite you. And the vipers in the path, they, they, they get in your way and, and you don't want to go by them. And if you get by them, they, 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 they'll, they'll get you, they'll bite you and, and, and they'll poison you. And so uh, we see Dan does that near the end of the book of Judges. Continuing in verse 19, raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. So Gad sounds like the Hebrew word for raiders and raid. So Gad's going to be, this is a prophecy looking forward. The people of Gad will be raided and uh, many times over, and they will have to uh, learn to defend themselves. They shall raid at their heels. Verse 20, Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph, here's our buddy Joseph. Joseph is a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father, who will help you? By the mighty, who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, Blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessing of my parents, up to, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Pause there. So he has quite a lot to say about Joseph. And there's, there's a lot, I, I think, that he's pointing to as far as the trials and tribulations that Joseph the man has already been through. See, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. Uh, he already has a couple of children by this time, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. So we could think of all the trials that he's gone through in his time. And, and Jacob is, is saying these were like archers firing at you. You got the archers of Potiphar and his wife, right? Remember the wife, or, or, or let's, let's, let's start with his own brothers, right? Joseph's brothers who sold him into slavery. 
And then he has the Potiphar situation where Potiphar sets him up where only Potiphar is the head, but Joseph is the second in charge of everything in Potiphar's household. But Potiphar's wife comes by trying to be the temptress and trying to lay with him and he refuses. And so she accuses him of trying to rape her. Uh, he runs away and of course leaving his jacket and, and uh, the jacket that's left becomes Potiphar's wife's evidence, even though it was a lie that she told about him. So he's thrown into prison and uh, the cupbearer and the baker come into the prison with him and he tra uh, he, uh, he interprets those dreams for the cupbearer and the baker. Eventually he's brought to Pharaoh, right? And interprets Pharaoh's dreams and is, and is set up as the second in command over all of Egypt. So Joseph has been through a lot. He's been through the attack of his brothers, the attack of Potiphar's wife, the, uh, not so much the attack of the, of the baker and the, the cupbearer, but his time in prison, imprisoned because of a, a crime that he didn't commit, the, the rape that he was accused of. You know, he's, he's gone through some, through, or he's had some arrows shot at him. Verse 24, yet his bow remain unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is a shepherd of the stone of Israel. So he's been strong through all, all this. He's, he's maintained uh, his strength. By the God of your father, who will help you? By the Almighty, who will bless you with blessings of heaven above? Blessings of the deep that crouches beneath. Blessings of the breasts and of the womb. So that's talking about, you know, you're going to... Children, right? The breasts and the womb. Now the womb, of course, is referring to children. And the breasts, of course, is referring to the nursing of infants. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessing of my parents, up to his bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. If you remember, Joseph was one of the youngest of all of the brothers. In fact, he was the youngest, save only Benjamin, because he was born much later in life. In fact, one of the reasons Jacob loved Joseph is because he was the son of his old age. And so we see... Uh, we saw last time that because of Reuben, the firstborn, remember Reuben's the firstborn, because of his sin of sleeping with his father's concubine, he, he doesn't bear the right of the firstborn. Rather, the right of the firstborn passes to Joseph's son, Ephraim. So the people of Joseph are replacing as firstborn the people of Reuben. And uh, again, reading some of the church fathers, they, they made a comment on how that's, that's very Christological in that you have Adam, who's the firstborn of humanity, who commits the great sin in the Garden of Eden, and he is replaced by someone who came much, 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 much later as, as the covenant head, Jesus Christ. Um, just like Joseph, who comes later, replaces Reuben as the firstborn, Christ replaces Adam as the firstborn and inherits all the promises. Uh, you see Paul making that connection between Adam and Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he refers to Jesus as the new Adam. So that's not just church fathers making this stuff up. There's, there's biblical warrant for, for, kind of that, for, for that interpretation. We have Adam and the new Adam. And what was lost in the first Adam is restored in the new Adam, Jesus Christ. So Jesus becomes the new Adam, the new creation. He re the world is recreated through him, through his death and resurrection. And uh, all the promises 
uh, of all the covenant head promises and all that is now in the person of Jesus Christ rather than the old Adam. Therefore, we who have faith in Jesus Christ and are united to him by baptism uh, participate in that, that victory, that victory over sin, that victory over death, the victory in all those covenant promises. That is what was lost in Adam is restored in Jesus Christ. And finally, verse 27, the final son, Benjamin, is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at the evening dividing the spoil. So a couple of people will rise from Benjamin that are very famous in the Bible. Saul, the first king of Israel before David, is a Benjamite. Uh, And Saul of the New Testament, who becomes Paul, is also a Benjamite. In fact, they probably, I'm I'm sure they share the same name because that was likely a very popular name of the people of Benjamin, right? You want to name your son after the first king of Israel, particularly if you're of the same tribe. So that's why our New Testament Saul is so named. He's named after the first king of Israel, even though, as we know, the first king of Israel turned out to not be a great king at all. He turned out to be a faithless king and was replaced by David, David of the tribe of Judah. So we see this promise that Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at the evening dividing the spoil. I was reading some commentators earlier uh, preparing for this, and a lot of them pointed forward to our New Testament Saul, who becomes Paul, who, who at the beginning of his life is a ravenous wolf devouring the church. Right? He goes out arresting Christians and, and trying to, to destroy Christianity. Um, but at the evening, he's dividing the spoil. So there's this, this change that happens in his life. Uh, and, the, and the spoil, as, as some of the church fathers discussed, is, is the word of God. So he's, he's rightly dividing the word of God, the spoil, um, and writing a lot of the New Testament. All right, continuing on, verse 28. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan. So notice that, Canaan. So don't bury me here in Egypt. I know we're all here in Egypt now, but after I die, I want you to carry my bones back to to Canaan, to that land of promise. Uh, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham brought, excuse me, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Now let's pause there. So a final command where Jacob asks his sons to take him back to the what will eventually be, be called the land of Israel. Right now it's called the land of Canaan. And bury him there in the same burial ground where his father and mother are buried, Isaac and Rebekah, and his grandfather and grandmother, Abraham and Sarah, are buried. Also the place where his wife, Leah, is buried. So that's, that's where I want to I want to rest with my family in this burial ground. And then he finishes this and he takes his last breath and dies. Chapter 50. Hang on. Yes. When they talk about 
he blessed his 12 sons. Uh, that sounds kind of funny to me because what he, what, what he did was he cursed his first couple sons. Right? <laughs> uh, didn't he? I mean, he well, said, he did. Reuben, you're un unstable as water, and uh, you, will not, you will not excel. Yep. So that, that's a great question. What's, what's the deal with these blessings? So yeah, it says, this is in verse 28, this is what their father said to him as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. I think that last part is important. So, exactly. So Reuben receives what's coming to him. It's not so much I'm cursing you as in I am ripping something away from you that you deserved, but rather because of your own choices and because of your faithlessness in this family and because you tried to overthrow me when you slept with my concubine and all this stuff, like this is what you get now. This, this is the result of that. This is the consequence of that kind of life lived. What did Simeon and Levi do where... I forget the story on them. What did Simeon and Levi went and killed all the people uh, from the Dinah incident in Shechem. Remember, their sister Dinah was raped by the prince of Shechem. They oh, okay, went and okay. used right. used circumcision, which is a holy right, sign, right. to uh, to get back at, at the people of Shechem. And so that's why that's why they received the uh, to use to use the biblical word. That's why they received the blessing suitable to them. <laughs> They were, they were an eye for an eye. Well, you know. it's, it's not an eye for an eye. An eye for an eye would be, you killed my brother, I kill you. Yeah. An eye for an eye is not, one person of your people raped my sister, therefore I'm going to kill every single person in that okay. tribe. Right. That's what they did. Okay. So it's, it's far worse than eye for an okay. eye. All right. Okay. Chapter 50. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it. For that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. So we see this great honor given to Joseph's family, particularly his father, Jacob. Is that Joseph still doing his job for the Yes, Pharaoh? he's still working for Pharaoh at okay, this time. All right. He's still working for Pharaoh. Jacob is dead. So the, the Egyptians, who are experts in the embalming process, or this is not something that the Hebrews know, the Hebrews do, but this is what Egyptians do. They embalm Jacob. They have to embalm Jacob because if they don't, he's going to decay. And they won't be able to take him back to the land of Canaan, right? So they go through the embalming process and they, they treat the body specifically in that way uh, so that they can bring him back to, to Canaan. In verse 4, when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke up. Oh, you know what? Before I continue on, it's, it's, it's interesting too. This last part of verse 3, the Egyptians wept for him for 70 days. So even the Egyptians who love Joseph so much are, are weeping for Jacob. Now, the reason that people weep now in today's culture versus back then are a little bit different, right? We weep because we're overcome with emotion or we go to a funeral and, and we see a friend of ours or a relative who has died and we, we cry. At this time, there was sort of customary times for weeping where the whole nation would be called to mourn 
over the loss of someone. So even if, if you didn't necessarily feel a connection to a person, you were still considered to be in mourning for a time, right? So that's what's going on with Egypt. So Egypt is in mourning for 70 days, which is the customary time to mourn for someone. We see again, and I, I, I kind of pointed this out a little bit last week, but I, I think it's important to, to fill this out. The promise given to Abraham back in Genesis 12, one of the many promises given to Abraham in Genesis 12 was, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And we see that, that Jacob and his family through Joseph has been very blessed by this Pharaoh. Right, this Pharaoh has set up Joseph to be second in command. Uh, we're going to see that this Pharaoh is eventually going to give Joseph full permission to go back to the land to bury his dad. Uh, this Pharaoh has treated Joseph's father, Jacob, with utmost respect, you know, saying, take the best of the land. If any of your sons are great shepherds, put them over my flocks, like really rolling out the red carpet for, for, for this guy. And so we saw last week that this, this, uh, this Pharaoh was blessed by God because of the because of the way he blessed Abraham's family, specifically Jacob and Joseph. We see the exact opposite happening in Exodus. A new Pharaoh will arise, and this Pharaoh does not know Jacob and Joseph, and this Pharaoh hates these people, and he enslaves these people. So the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12 is, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you. And that's exactly what we see playing out in Exodus. There's going to be these plagues that are brought against the, the, the new Pharaoh uh, because he mistreated God's people and enslaved God's people and refused to let God's people go when Moses comes knocking on Pharaoh's door and says, you need to let my people go so that we can go worship God in the wilderness. At least Joseph got out of it before the new king came because they, they had a stone tomb or something for him and he wanted to go back to Canaan. Joseph's going to end up, up, up in Canaan as well. Yeah. Yeah. But that's about 400 years from now. You know, Exodus takes, takes place in about 400 years in the future from this point. So continuing on in chapter 50, verse 4. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die in my tomb that I hewed out, of my, that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. Pause there. So this is quite the entourage leaving Egypt, going into the land of Canaan to bury Jacob. Verse 9. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Etad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the morning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous morning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mizraim, which means morning of Egypt. M-O-U-R-N, morning, uh, sorrow, sorrow of Egypt. Verse 12, Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. And that means they brought him out of Egypt and buried him in the land of Canaan that he asked him to. For his sons carried him 
Oh, here it is. And four sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. I want to pause real quick and read something that I just found really fascinating from John Chrysostom, who was a uh, one of our beloved church fathers in the 4th century. I'm so bad with dates. Yes, 300s, 300s is 4th century. Here it is. Okay. So John Chrysostom reads all this mourning that goes on for Jacob, that, that the people of, uh, that Jacob's family mourns for, what is it, uh, close to 30 days or something like that, that the Egyptians mourned for 70 days. Here they pause again, seven days, uh, while, while they're on their journey to Canaan, they stop for seven days at the threshing floor and mourn again for another seven days, uh, all over the death of Jacob. And Chrysostom has an interesting comment about that. For your part, uh, and it's the gates of the underworld were still not broken at this time. So listen to this. For your part, however, dearly beloved, so, so th- this would have been a sermon that Chrysostom preached. He was a great preacher. So this is a snippet of one of his sermons. For your part, however, dearly beloved, don't simply pass this by on hearing it. Instead, consider the time when it happened and absolve Joseph of all blame. So what he's saying here is, we might think it's very weird that they mourned for so long over one man. But he's saying, allow them the, the uh, please, please forgive them for all this mourning that they do because, and it's the because that's interesting. I mean, the gates of the underworld were still not broken or the bonds of death loosed, nor was death yet called sleep. Hence, because they feared death, they acted this way. Today, on the contrary, thanks to the grace of God, since death has been turned into slumber and life's end into repose, and since there is a great certitude of resurrection, we rejoice and exult at death like people moving from one life to another. Why do I say from one life to another? From a worse to a better, from a temporary to an eternal, from an earthly to a heavenly. So what is Chrysostom saying? He's saying at this time in the cosmology of the world, it is appropriate to mourn deeply and longingly for those who die because they go down into the place of the underworld. Their body goes into the ground, but their soul, which lives eternally, goes down into the place of the underworld, what the Old Testament calls Sheol, S-H-E-O-L. What is the same concept of Hades in Greek thought. So they go down into Sheol to just await, as we know, await the resurrection. We know that now, living on this side of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But there's Jewish thought and Greek thought and all these other thoughts from the ancient Near Eastern culture of like what happens to you in the underworld, right? If you're if you're a Greek or maybe it's Rome, I can't remember. Either the Greeks or the Romans believe that you just kind of go down into the underworld and you eventually just become a shell of your former self, kind of like this vaporous creature. And eventually when people on earth forget about you, you just cease to exist. That's the best you can hope for in life after death, right? It's pretty bleak. So when someone dies, you mourn appropriately because, oh my gosh, they're now part of this bleak underworld existence. That's horrible. Life after death is horrible. What Chrysostom is saying, since we know the full revelation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
There's no need to mourn like this. 30 days, 70 days, another week here. There's no need to mourn like that for, for those who die in Christ. Because when we die now in Christ, it's not a bleak death where we go down into the underworld. Rather, we go to be a part of the heavenly throne room of God awaiting the resurrection. So while our bodies go into the ground, we're buried, our souls go not downward into the underworld, but upward now into heaven. For Paul says to be absent from the body is present with the Lord. And we spend that time in heaven around the throne room of God, joining our voices with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven singing praises to God. We're doing exactly what God designed us to do, and it is a blissful existence. And while we're there, we and we are awaiting in that time the final resurrection at the end of time, the general resurrection, where we shall receive our bodies back. And then the new heavens and the new earth will be established under King Jesus. This is all spoken of at the very end of Revelation. So Chrysostom says, for Christians, that is a hopeful future. That is a hopeful eternity, not a bleak future of underworld living. Does that make sense? Okay, so what does that mean when people die today? It is perfectly appropriate to mourn people when they die because death is horrible, you know, but Christ defeated death. And I think that's the great Christian hope. So when a family member dies or a relative or a friend, we say, death took my friend, death took my relative, but Christ defeated death in his resurrection. So death doesn't have the final word in my friend or relative's demise. Christ has the final word in that. And so when we die in Christ, the final word is the new heavens and the new earth spoken of at the end of Revelation. Uh, continuing on, I think we're in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, ah, here it comes. It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Oh my gosh. Now Joseph's brothers are scared. They said, uh-oh. While dad was alive, he could keep Joseph from killing us or torturing us or throwing us in prison. But now that dad's dead, Joseph is going to do whatever he wants to because he's the second in command of all of Egypt. Whatever he says goes. If Joseph lifted up his hand and told the guards to, to, to grab us and throw us in shackles, guess what? Guess what those guards are going to do? Those guards are going to turn to Joseph and say, What's the charge, Joseph? Right? This isn't innocent until proven guilty America. This is this is Old Testament Egypt, right? Innocent until proven guilty doesn't exist in the land of Egypt, especially when you are the second in command of all of Egypt. You can pretty much do whatever you want. Verse 16. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. So what do we learn from this? We learned that Jacob knew. Jacob did know what happened. So Jacob knew that his brothers lied, that Jacob knew that his sons lied to him about Joseph dying. And Jacob had at some point, though we don't read it in the book of Genesis, we don't read it in the text itself, but at some point Jacob told Joseph, let all this go. I have forgiven them. You should forgive them too. So now Joseph's brothers are coming to Joseph and reminding him what dad said. Remember what dad said. You need to forgive us. You need to forgive us. Please don't kill us. 
Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of God and your father. Joseph wept as they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am, for am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So this is all of the story of Joseph and all the lessons learned of Joseph's life found right here in verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This reminds me of what Paul writes in the book of Romans, chapter 8. And I know I've said this many, many times, but Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those... Where'd I go? All things work together for good for those who were called according to his purpose. So God had worked everything out for good for Joseph. Now, what we do is we have the benefit of seeing the end of Joseph's life, and we can see the finish line of Joseph's life, so to speak, and then go back and look at Joseph's early life and say, oh man, he's mistreated by his brothers, he's mistreated by Potiphar's wife, he finds his time in prison, but it's okay because we know how it all ends, right? We have that benefit. But imagine being Joseph and living this life. Joseph didn't know how his life was going to end. Joseph didn't know that God was working things out for his good in the moment. Joseph's sitting there in a pit trying to understand when he's 17 years old why his brothers are selling him into slavery and how could my brothers do this to me? Where is God in the midst of all this? Joseph doesn't have the hindsight when he's in Potiphar's house being accused of raping Potiphar's wife saying, what's the deal, right? He doesn't have the hindsight of knowing, well, it's okay because I know that I'm eventually going to become, you know, second in command of all of Egypt. He doesn't, he doesn't have that hindsight. He's living in the experience of that moment. And he's going, oh my gosh, this is horrible. Where's God, right? But he continues to be faithful even in the midst of these moments. Several years in prison, you might be wondering, where's God in the midst of all this? I have no idea, but I'm going to continue serving God faithfully because I know that he is good. And even though I can't make any sense out of my current situation, I know that God is good and God is working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We see that his faithfulness to God early in his life bears much fruit later in his life. Because God does bless him richly, and God makes him second in command of all of Egypt under Pharaoh. Why does God do that? Does God do that because God thought, well, Joseph, you've, you've had some, some pretty big uh, mishaps. You've had a hard life. Let me make your life easy now. Well, no, he does it for a purpose, and Joseph gives it to us. He did it to bring about uh, that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So God's purpose in all of this was to save the land of Egypt 
and also to save the holy promise, the, 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 the family of promise, Abraham's family, Jacob now and his, and his sons, because they now have to come get grain from Egypt. God is behind the scenes working all of this out. Does Joseph know that? Nope. Jo- Joseph may intellectually know that. Joseph may intellectually be able to profess God's in control. I don't really understand how this is working out for my good, but I know that it is because God's in control. But it, when, when you're in the moment, I'm sure, I'm sure you've all have been here. When you're in the moment and, and you're, you're in the, 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 the hard circumstances and the hard times that this life throws, throws at us, it's easy to throw up your hands and say, I don't know what's going on and just get frustrated with, with, with life, right? It's easy to, to be faithless and to even falter from time to time. Joseph needed to have the dream so that he could interpret it. Uh, Joseph was saying, I got that dream right. <laughs> That's right. And everything worked out good. Everything worked out. That's right. So Joseph, in hindsight, is able to look back on his life and comfort his brothers and say, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So then he comforts them further and says, do not fear. I'm not going to take vengeance on you, even though I could, even though I have the power to do so. I'm not going to uh, kill you and all your children, even though all I have to do is lift my hand and it happens. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that because I worship God. I follow his ways and I worship a good God. Therefore, I'm going to be good to you. In fact, you guys didn't know this. But even when you were throwing me in the pit and I was living in Potiphar's house and I was in prison and all this stuff, God was working all this out. Now, that doesn't excuse his brothers, mind you. That doesn't mean that his brothers are now not culpable for their sin. They are. Let's let's personalize this. When someone commits a sin against you, that person is culpable for their sin before God. But God can work that out for good in your life. So again, as we said earlier talking about death and resurrection, death doesn't have the final word. Jesus does. And the same thing is true when people commit evil acts against you. That evil act doesn't have the final word. Jesus does. Jesus can turn that around in your life and work it out for good to actually bring life not only to you, but to those around you like like he did for Joseph. Thus, Joseph comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Verse 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children also of Makar, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. Let's pause there. So quick timeline. Joseph was 17 when he was cast into the pit by his brothers. Joseph was 30. Wait, let me back up. At some time in his 20s, I want to say he was 27, 28, I can't remember, is when he's accused of the rape at Potiphar's house. So he lived with Potiphar for a few years before then. Uh, So then he's imprisoned from that time until he's about 30 years old. He meets the baker and he meets the cupbearer. At 30 years old, he's brought before Pharaoh and interprets Pharaoh's dream. And that's when he's promoted to be the second in command of all of Egypt. If you remember the dream, it's a seven-year dream, right? Or the, The dream talks about seven years. It's going to be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. So at 37, that's the last great year of plenty. And then you get the seven years of famine. And that's about the time that we see Joseph's brothers. I think he's 30, 
nine. I'm re reaching way back into my mind. It's around 39 or maybe, maybe even 37 when his brothers come searching for grain at, uh, from him in Egypt and they don't recognize him. So now he's 110 when he finally passes away. So that is 80 years, 80 years he spends as the second in command under Pharaoh in Egypt do doing this job. Now we look at that 80 years out of 110. That's a long time. Most of his life, he had this privileged position in the land of Egypt. For 30 years, though, he did not. And for 17 of those 30 years, he was a youth. So the time that he spent uh, in, the, uh, in the pits of life, so to speak, uh, is far less than the times he spent in the great blessings of life. So I say that as a means of encouragement, because sometimes the pits of life that we go through can feel like we're never going to get out. It can feel like it's dragging on forever. But uh, I think if we have some perspective, we'll come to understand that this is a season and this, this too shall pass, as it did for Joseph. So Joseph sees uh, his children, his children's children. Verse 24, and Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph, the sons of Israel, then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now, Joseph prophesies, we'll see, Joseph knows that this is not the final resting place for, for his people. He knows, he even tells his brothers, we're not here, we're not permanent citizens in the land of Egypt. We will eventually go back into the land of Canaan. That's what he tells his brothers. Joseph made his sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. We see this happening in the book of Exodus, when the people of Israel are finally set free from their enslavement from the new Pharaoh that arise, arises in Exodus. They, one of the things they take is Joseph's body with them. So they do take Joseph's body back with them in the Exodus, and they do bury him in the land of Israel, the I land of Canaan. Joseph knew the next Pharaoh, and he didn't get treated well. I thought, I thought that's what was going to happen. No, Joseph, the, the, the new Pharaoh, the, the evil Pharaoh of the book of Exodus is 400 years in the future. Okay, all right. So there's a 400-year gap between the closing of Genesis and the opening of Exodus. So that completes our study in Genesis. So Genesis is, is quite, quite a book, 50 chapters. And so what have we learned so far? We, we read, we opened with the creation of the world, Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam and Eve fall, they're cast out of the garden because they don't listen to God, rather they listen to the serpent. You know, we, we, we see evil just continues to grow and fester in the world till you get to the time of Noah. There are giants in the land in those days, right? We talked about how the sons of God are intermarrying with the daughters of men and producing the Nephilim giants. Uh, and God says, this is horrible. This, this has just gone awry. I will start over with Noah. Noah's the righteous man in the midst of all this. So God floods the earth. He cleanses the earth, so to speak, and uh, starts the human race over with Noah. And Noah's 
three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, repopulate the earth, and eventually you have the Tower of Babel that happens in, uh, with, with, with the midst of all that, where the humans want to make a name for themselves rather than make a name for God. So they, they follow their own selfish ambitions. And uh, God comes down and confuses the languages. We haven't even got to Genesis 12 yet. This is all, all this has happened, right? God disinherits the nations at the Tower of Babel. Remember, he said, I'm going to put you in charge of, of angels and the angels are going to watch over you guys. But God calls out Abraham to himself and says, I will be your God. You will be my people. God makes those all those promises to Abraham. And the promise that he makes to Abraham is several fold. But as, as we learned, the purpose of the promise is to bring about the Messiah who's going to restore all the chaos or, or bring order and life to all the chaos and death we saw in the first 12 chapters of Genesis. That's what Jesus does. God calling Abraham is not just for Abraham and his people, just for the Israelites that follow him, but the promise made to Abraham eventually lands on Jesus Christ who comes from the line of Abraham so that he can die for the sins of the whole world. As we read in our liturgy, right? You, you have died not only for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And then the rest of the book of Genesis zooms in on the line of Abraham. Abraham and his wife, Sarah, they're barren. They can't have children, remember? So God works a miracle in Sarah's womb. From that, you have Abraham to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob, and from Jacob now to Joseph and his brothers, now living in the land of Egypt. God has been faithful to the promise that he made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12. And God will continue to be faithful. If we, were, if we were going to continue on into the book of Exodus, we would see God's continued faithfulness to his people. And all of this is to bring about the Messiah, the chosen one, the Christ, the anointed one. That's, that's what all that, that's what Messiah means. The one who will redeem the world from its greatest enemy, greatest enemies, plural, sin, death, and the devil. That's the problem that we see established early in the chapters of Genesis. Humanity has a sin problem because we rebelled against God. Humanity has a death problem now because on the day you eat of that fruit, you shall surely die. And humanity is now under the thumb, under the tyranny of the devil. And Jesus Christ restores all of that by defeating or forgiving sin, by defeating death in his resurrection, and by undoing the tyranny of the devil over humanity's life. That's why Jesus, and not Satan, is now the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's what, that's what we see in the New Testament. We who follow him in faith and baptism are united to that victory. We share in that victory, not because we won it ourselves, but because Jesus won that victory for us, and we participate in that victory. Again, going back to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, what's, what was lost in Adam is restored in the new Adam, Jesus Christ. That's all 1 Corinthians 15 language. We are done now. We are done with our Genesis study. Are there any final questions on anything that we looked at tonight or anything from the book of Genesis at all? It was an interesting book. It was. It is. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you again for our time together reading through Genesis. We pray that the truths of this book would be imprinted on our hearts, that we would carry it in our minds and carry it uh, in our thoughts. 
We pray that you would go with us this week in all that we do. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining me in Reading Genesis. If you'd like to contact me, I'm available at reading.genesis.podcast at gmail.com. And now, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Thank you.